You know, there's so many things going down. Um, it's really a challenge to know, like, when to address something from this, this um, space. I, I, and I always try to check myself when I had the idea to do that, um, because, you know, it's not my job to tell you guys how to think. You, you, you've got good brains um, about, you know, events of the day. I certainly don't want this time um, set aside for commenting on sacred scripture to be organized around the news cycle, but there are times when our sacred text and current events so align and are so relevant that not to address them would, would be tone deaf, and I think today is one of those days. So obviously our nation's deeply divided, um, but divided in, in, in a new way, like beyond the usual differences between liberal and conservative. I mean, oh, for those days, when those were our disputes. Today we face like deeper questions of identity that, that many in our community have known for a long time, but like it's becoming obvious to everyone. We're facing deeper questions. Who are we? I mean, what do we stand for? Uh, and this asylum seekers crisis that, um, that Lisa referenced is, is but the latest example and it's, it's symbolic of our um, tendency in our country, it's a human tendency, to persecute the other, anyone who is not perceived as us. So now the latest is we've had, you know, entire families have been making a perilous journey from sent their homes in Central America, primarily Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, through Mexico to the borders of this country. And because parents often are facing like really horrible choices as like drug cartels and gangs recruit their children, like join us or else. And the or else is really quite unspeakable. And then our government decided to forcibly separate these parents arriving at the border from their children at the border with no clear plan to reunite them. Over 2,000 children are now incarcerated with their families uh, because their families came as um, asylum seekers. And I, I read an NBC report that they're discovering like more that this had been happening kind of on an earlier basis and the number may be closer to 4,000, doesn't matter. The head, the, the, the um, attorney general of our nation who's in charge of the Department of Justice buttressed this policy by appeal to one verse in Romans 13 about obeying orders for the sake of the common good. Now, when the Attorney General starts quoting my book, I, I, I take that personally. Um, I, this is, this is, I, I love this book. And if you read Romans 13, the example of that in Romans 13 is paying taxes. It's paying taxes. And then he completely ignored the following verses in the immediately subsequent verses in Romans 13. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to the neighbor. So I'd like to offer what I think is a more relevant text, and it's a, it's a, a surprisingly unknown text um, in Matthew chapter 2. If you have a smartphone, you can pull up Matthew 2. It might be worth it. It's about in the middle. starts in verse 13. I want to set the scene for Matthew 2. Jesus is born to Mary and Joseph. Um, when the client king 
of Israel, King Herod. So he was Jewish in name only, and, but he's really subservient to the Roman occupation force. So he's got all these alliances with religious leaders and with Rome. It's the usual mix of religion and power, and, and he's using, you know, kind of religious connections to amplify his power, but the power is really coming from, you know, a very hostile force, Rome and occupation. And Herod catches a wind of some astrological signs that have been pointing to the um, destiny, a significant destiny for a child born in Bethlehem, a.k.a. Jesus. So let's pick up the story here in uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. The equivalencies are striking. Now, after they had left... The they are the three Persian. They were really astrologers. We know them as kings or magi or wise men. But the three Persian astrologers whose interest in the birth uh, going on in Bethlehem got these rumors circulating about the child's destiny and those rumors were threatening to Herod. So they go there and they leave. They visit the child after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, the thing is, this episode is tucked away in the birth narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And that, um, that situ situatingness of the text um, tends to obscure it. It kind of hides it. Because it's in the birth narrative, and there are only birth narratives in Matthew, um, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospels, and we're used to hearing the birth narratives in a certain emotional context. It's it's Christmas time, and it's in Christmas carols while we're shopping in little town of Bethlehem, and it came upon a midnight clear and silent night. Well, this is this one though is part of the story of the three wise men, you know, the we three kings of Orient are, which we usually say for like the Sunday after Christmas, when everyone is in a state of consumer exhaustion, finally the, the outlaws and the in-laws and people have left, or you're home safe, and there are you know, too many Christmas cookies, and we're all like in a somnambulant state of, of uh, you know, pre- uh, uh, pre-sugar high or pre-diabetes, um, and and the and the focus then is on the on the three kings, so we miss this story, and we particularly miss the emotional impact of this story, which is every parent's absolute nightmare. You know, um, I. I uh, I have uh, six children, including a, a stepdaughter, and a few of our kids um, would get croup often in the wintertime. I don't, have you parents ever dealt with a child who has croup? Well, um, it, it would always happen at night. And, and do you know the croup drill? 
the croup drill, you know, one time you're trying to figure out, is this okay? Is this normal? You're calling your mother. You're, you know, calling someone who hasn't, you're fi trying to figure out. Eventually you end up going to the urgent care ER. Well, we, we knew this drill because we were like a, a croup-laden family. And once Amy, my daughter Amy's throat was constricting by the minute when she got croup. So her already high voice, minute by minute, was getting higher and higher and higher because her larynx was closing and it was small to begin with. And I, I'm a registered nurse and I knew this was a medical emergency. We threw her in the car. We drove to the ER. Now, fortunately, what often happens is croup happens at, in uh, wintertime and you, as soon as you go outside, you know, the cold air kind of reduces the swelling so that by the time you get to the ER, it's, it's much better. But it was still, for those sh uh, few short minutes, it was, it was terrifying. So picture this, Joseph and Mary, they're unaware of any danger. When Joseph has a dream, and he was a man in a culture that was used to taking dreams seriously. Dreams were ways that the divine communicated with you. And an angel appeared in this dream. So this is like a higher level dream than the typical message from God because an angel appears. Now ordinarily when angels appear, they're very reassuring. They say things like, have no fear. I mean people are startled by angels appearing and so they're like, chill, it's fine, just go use the bathroom, come back. <laughs> no, I have a message, I, I know it's from God, it'll be okay, have no fear. But this Angel has a different message with a, a whole different emotional tone and effect. Get up and take the child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Joseph is sleeping when this message comes to him. The, the, the angel uses three strong imperative verbs. They're called, you know, like go do something verbs with exclamation points on each one of them. Get up, take the child and flee for Herod known to be a paranoid murderous ruler intends to seek out the child your child in order to destroy him <laughs> and the account goes on and waking <laughs> yes and waking he took the child and his mother in the night and departed into Egypt so this is a journey of 430 uh, miles as the crow flies. But you can't get there as the crow flies. You can't fly. You're a human being. <laughs> it, you know, it's probably 4 or 6 BC. Jesus, interestingly, was born before Christ. <laughs> Just a, an odd thing with the calendars. And, and they walked. <laughs> they walked. The route included uh, mountains, valleys, rivers, desert, and wilderness. There were bandits and there were uh, killers hiding out. This was just common in, in that region of the world. There was no like highway patrol or anything like that. There's, th th we have no idea how long such a journey would have taken. They would only have initiated such a journey as a total last resort. They made it for one reason. They were terrified for their child. So we have a nearly exact equivalence, don't we, to the Central American 
asylum seekers coming as a family unit to the United States after incredibly long and perilous journey. Often they too have had to decide to leave in a hurry under very similar circumstances. Often the son or the daughter in the family is threatened by gangs because it's time for them to be recruited. And sometimes even relatives are killed if the, if the kid doesn't respond to the recruiting. And, and some kind of event happens where it's like a crisis and it's like, oh, we got to leave now. And these people are being hounded by uh, cartel lords and gang lords, every bit as corrupt and hard-hearted as Herod, people who want to destroy their kids. I mean, this is what's going on. Now, there's only one way that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus would have survived such a journey, 430 miles as the crow flies, to Egypt, and that would be through the kindness of strangers. I mean, you cannot make a journey like that successfully without the kindness of strangers. I mean, literally, they would have required the help of dozens upon dozens of strangers on such a journey before they even got to Egypt. I mean, maybe we've all had the occasion to um, appreciate the kindness of a stranger when we've been traveling. Um, a few years ago, I was uh, up north, up in the north country, and it was a unusually remote location. There was no cell coverage, and Julia's car uh, gets a flat. Now, I used to fix flats all the time. I mean, I used to have old junkers, and I would flat. I mean, if you grew up in Detroit in the 1950s and you could not change a flat tire and you were male, you were just, you were just, well, don't even, don't, don't even exist. So I, I could, I could change a tire. I got soft though. I got really soft. Because <laughs> AAA, you know, you pay AAA. I don't know, like... Uh, I'm a lifelong, I'm a, I'm a member of AAA since 1970. <laughs> yes, I know. And, you know, I use AAA like twice a year to get my car started, to you know, run out of gas or whatever. And it's, it's so easy and they're really fast and it works great. I couldn't use AAA. I, okay, I was newly married. I'm a man of a certain generation. I wanted to impress Julia that I would, and it was her car. I wanted to be the man and change the tire. But you know, it's a car I'm, I'm unfamiliar with. Where, where do they put the spare tires in these cars anymore? And, you're, and I'm, I'm, the indignity to my male ego of having to ask Julia, where is the tire in your car? And I'm finding it and I'm pulling it out and it's a totally inadequate system. They had like a little, a little um, lug nut wrench like this. It seemed like it was made of plastic. I, try, I tried it on the lug nut. The lug nuts on this tire were like, have you ever been in the discount tire where they're changing your tires and they go and then they were tight. On that thing, I could not get it down. I could not call AAA. I was like, a big red truck 
drives right up next to me. The guy looks like Brad. He pulls out, <laughs> he pulls out this incredible lug nut uh, wrench. It was like a, a, it was like this, and it was like that. And he was so he. We had like the, we had like the husband union thing going. He knew that he had to deal with my ego in front of Julia. No, in front of me. And and he said, Oh, there's no way you're gonna get that those lug nuts off without with that little thing. You know why do they even provide those anymore? Here, do you mind if I do that? Sure, go ahead. You know, boom, <laughs> boom. He does it. Do do you mind if I just throw the tire on? That that'd be fine. Yeah, dude, but you're not going to get my Bud Light, you know. Um, and I'm, I was so appreciative of the kindness of a complete stranger. We, we actually are all dependent on the kindness of strangers for our literal survival, aren't we? I mean, you know, we, all the time. Often the strangers are paid to do things for us, but we are dependent on the kindness of strangers for our survival. And this is so much a characteristic of our species, the human being, that our bodies actually uh, evolved to release a potent cocktail of neurotransmitters and hormones that are all like, it's a pleasure cocktail. And we get the biggest boost of this pleasure cocktail, not when we help a friend or a family member. That's usually like, oh God, they need help again. You know, that's our feeling. <laughs> but when we help a stranger, we get this lift. It's called helper's high. It lasts all day long. When you think about the time you help the stranger, you get a little, li little lift of helper's high. We've evolved because it's so important for us in our humanity because we're in groups that are large enough that we have to survive together. And at least some of the people are going to be strangers. So this is central to our humanity, this kindness to strangers impulse of ours. When we deaden this impulse... We deaden our own humanity. So when Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, depending on the kindness of strangers, arrived in Egypt, the text doesn't even mention. The text just assumes that they're received in Egypt. And of course they are. They're not separated. Mary and Joseph were not put in detention while the strangers took Jesus into makeshift cages in renovated Walmarts. They were received. They were treated as humans. There was a robust uh, Jewish uh, exile community in Cairo and, and um, in Alexandria. And, and they were treated as humans in the image of God must be treated if we, those doing the treatment, are to retain our humanity. It's about our humanity here. So this equivalency is quite striking and it goes further. And I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so... Egypt is the closest equivalent in the Bible, besides Babylon, to today's most powerful nation, which is the United States. Egypt in the Bible is the first superpower that we are introduced to in the book of Exodus. This is from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, one of my resources. From the beginning of the biblical narrative, Egypt is presented as an imposing place of abundance and power. Egypt embodies the political and military temptation to turn to idolatrous superpowers instead of to Yahweh in times of acute national crisis. Um, Egypt, like our country, 
built up its wealth on the forced labor of slaves. Like our country, when the slaves were emancipated, they were harassed and persecuted by the Egyptians. We Americans sometimes forget that. We celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War, and aren't we awesome? We freed the slaves, and we totally repress the harassment and the persecution of the slaves after they were emancipated, which in a sense continues to this day. I mean, we, we, oh, the stories we tell ourselves, to good, feel good about ourselves. Isn't it amazing? So this, we're talking about a very precise equivalency, which you don't always get when you're comparing current events with biblical stories. All the accounts of slavery in Egypt actually indicate the Egyptian slaveholders were much less harsh than the slavery we practiced in our country. So without the humane treatment of the Holy Family... In Egypt, literally, we would have no Jesus. We would have no Jesus. I'm quite partial to Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord. And this, I'm just giving you like, I could have just like picked, you know, this is like from a grab bag. You know, when I was growing up, there was Milky the Clown and, you know, he put your hand in the, in the thing and you pull up. Oh, good, someone with white hair. This, you know, you pull up, get as many pennies as you can from the, goldfish bowl full of pennies and that's when you're on Milky the Clown and you win something. So this is what I'm doing and, uh, but the, 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 it's not pennies, it's just Bible verses in the Bible. I just put my hand in there and I pulled up three pennies. Here's one. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That's an exodus. Um, Leviticus, the book that we all kind of, you know, like to snicker at as Gentiles. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner, the stranger. In other words, you cannot put maximizing profits ahead of your own humanity. That's Leviticus 19. A little bit later in Leviticus 19, the stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love the stranger as yourself. For you were strangers in Egypt. Now this is the verse that was tucked away in the book of Leviticus, one of the books of Torah, that Jesus elevated this single verse to summarize the Bible. This was the central verse of what became the Jesus ethic. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to the neighbor. The golden rule. All of that come from this particular verse amplified and elevated by our Jesus. The theme of the stranger is so important in the Bible, it cannot be underestimated. The followers of Jesus in the book of Hebrews are referred to as strangers in a strange land. So this is like our spiritual identity. We're immigrants. We're all immigrants. So if we are the Jesus people, we have to identify with the immigrants because it's actually our spiritual status. And that's not even a tenth of it. Virtually every book of the Bible reinforces this theme. You cannot miss it. And it's at the heart of our spirituality. That means it's at the heart of the way we connect to God and whether we connect to God. So it's, it's 
Well, it's like communion. It's like worship music. It's spirituality. It's how we connect to God. Because if we do not welcome the stranger who is the other than us, we cannot welcome God. Now stick with me, because God, in Hebrew thought, is the ultimate other than us. This is what it means to say God is holy. The word holy means separate, set apart. When we say God is holy, it's in reference to us. It means that God is other than us. God is the ultimate other than us. And, and other than us is absolutely essential for any meaningful connection, right? Any meaningful relationship. And relationship is at the heart of the biblical vision of God. So we can only welcome God. We can only be reconciled to God. We can only enjoy the company of God as much as we are willing to welcome the foreigner, the stranger, the asylum seeker, the other than us, whoever that is. So we live in a time of great hardening of, of the heart is spreading across our land, uh, modeled from the highest places of power. The prophet Ezekiel saw this going on in his land, and he called it the heart of stone. He's foretold a day in the new covenant, actually, when God would replace our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. And by this heart of stone, he contrasted it with the heart of flesh. He meant the, the inner heart, the unfeeling heart, the heart incapable of compassion. The heart of flesh is the beating heart, the human heart, the heart that's moved and is not inert. So what are we to do? Well, we're to get up. You know, like, wake up. It's the same like Joseph in the dream. We're sleeping. we got to wake up. we got to get up and not take it sitting down. Our elected officials, especially in this era, are not doing their job. So we have to pay more attention to our job at the grassroots level of our communities. Every one of us is called to lean our hearts toward the other than us. You know, um, the immigrant, the foreigner the outsiders, the stranger, or anyone who is the other than us. We have to lean our heart. You know, to walk, you, you don't walk like this. The first move of every step is to lean forward, right? Like you're leaning forward. Oh my gosh, I'm going to fall. I better take a step. So before every step, there's the lean. And so the lean of the heart is so important. So with the intention of our heart, we, we're called to lean our heart toward the other than us. And I'm going to offer some close at hand things we might do, but let's keep in mind the key is the lean of our hearts. If, if we lean our hearts, then the, the opportunities are going to uh, be apparent to us. You'll figure out better things than these to do. But here's my suggestions I close with. Um, Read the story in Matthew 2, starting at verse 13, so you can tell the story. Like, this is the time for us to become literate in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Actually, the nub of it is really just three verses. And so there's a little postscript at the end. But read the story 
so that you can t actually tell the story. Why? Well, actually, the majority of Christians in the United States today get their Bible, if they get the Bible, through the lectionary. You know what the lectionary is? The lectionary is the, is the device, uh, the arrangement of the readings of sacred scripture that are used by the Roman Catholic tradition, the mainline Protestant traditions, the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran churches, the Presbyterian churches. And most people, when they engage scripture, if they engage scripture, engage it through hearing scripture read in church from the lectionary. I have an expert on the lectionary in my family. I have an Episcopal priest wife who knows the lectionary and asked her how often would Matthew 2, 13 through 15 be, be read on a Sunday in the lectionary and she looked it up. She had some app for looking it up and she said, well, actually, it's never read on a Sunday everywhere. That normally it's read like on a Wednesday and it's after Christmas and it's optional. There's, it's very complicated. But I have the expert and I know this stuff, you know. It's optional. So you could, you could be a faithful church attender for 10 years, going to church on Sunday, actually paying attention to the readings and never hear this story. That's got to change. We got we to gotta elevate this story. So I just want to encourage us all to read the story, be familiar with the story, and then as we have opportunity to tell the story, tell it on Facebook, tell it to your friends whenever the topic comes up, think about recounting this story. Um, not, not, yeah, okay, enough of that. Um, second, so I believe the Spirit is calling us to be extra attentive and alert uh, to the need of others for sanctuary. For sanctuary. I want to emphasize that word, sanctuary. You know, faith communities all over the world gather for worship in spaces that are commonly called sanctuaries. It's interesting that many of the box churches have stopped calling them sanctuaries and call them auditoriums. And I think that's, hmm, that, that word difference is, is, is representing a heart difference often. Um, sanctuaries. So actually the space that we're meeting in was originally constructed as a sanctuary. It's actually called a social hall because there's a new sanctuary over there. So we rent the social hall on our contract, but uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. This is a sanctuary. This was the original sanctuary for Temple Beth Emmet and um, St. Clair of Assisi. And I think it's especially sacred sanctuary because it was this combined sanctuary of a synagogue and a church, and that's what all that is for. That was for the Torah scroll was there, and the altar of the Episcopal Church was there, and they didn't have the kitchen back there. It was a little bit bigger, but this space is a sanctuary. You know, um, many people in our congregation are part of groups whose rights are either not fully established or are and have been under threat. I mean, that's just a sociological reality of who we are as a congregation. Um, you know, I was just so proud of the church. I was so, I was like, oh gosh, this is so good. When uh, Liliana uh, Angel Reyes spoke uh, last Sunday, a Latina trans woman, um, you know, I, I, don't, I can identify with some of our LGBT um, members who are str struggle with like internalized 
what is it, internalized homophobia or something like that, where you're like, you have that voice in your head that never quite goes away. Well, I have like internalized evangelical in my head. And I had invited Liliana to speak. And I'm a little bit ashamed to confess this, but I was in the I was standing in the bathroom like a month after I invited her to speak. And I had just like a like a shame reaction that was from my inner evangelicals. Like, what am I doing inviting a Latina trans woman to speak at church? This is gonna blow up the church, it's gonna be horrible. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's a that's an old part of my brain. <laughs> you know, like I noticed it right away and I kinda like, okay, I'm okay, you know, there's a congress of persons in your brain. And sometimes you have to ignore different ones that are yakking and yakking. And I ignored that one. It was, it was fine. But then Liliana, I mean, she spoke so much more. She's, I expected it to be good. It was better than good. I, I could do a whole commentary on her talk. It was amazing. And then she, she got a standing ovation from the, from the church. And I was, I was sitting up here. I was looking at Liliana. She was very moved by that. And I, I walked her out to her car, and she, was, she hadn't had an experience like this in a church, and it was extremely moving uh, to her. And I thought, dang, that was, that, all that was so worth doing. Um, the other thing, and that sanctuary, the experience of sanctuary. Um, we're going to have communion in just a moment. Caroline will be leading us. And the thing is, we gather to worship the asylum-seeking God. We gather to worship the asylum-seeking God. This is really subtle. This is really interesting that in, in the origin story of Israel, there's a separation between God and the humans. The, the humans go off into exile, east of Eden, John Steinbeck, all that. They're, they're, they're missing God for the whole rest of the story. They're in exile from God. But also in the prophets, there's a sense that God is in exile in his own temple, which is the earth, because he's missing his humans. And so this sensibility comes out. In the, there's a, there's a, I, I'm pretty sure it's in Isaiah. I'm mainly remembering the charismatic song, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, God speaking. But where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? It's the anguished in exile God saying, I'm looking for a home and my home was supposed to be with human beings because they're made in my image and likeness. They're like the, the inner holy of holies of my temple and the earth is my temple and, and they're not letting me in. <laughs> And I don't have a home with them. And so I'm an exile. I'm a stranger in my strange land. And by what I, I built the place. It's my place. It's just not fair. It's not right. It's got to change. Where will my resting place be? And the Messiah comes along. Jesus says, Here, O Lord, have I prepared for you a home. Here have I prepared for you a home. Here you may come and dwell with me. And then by extension, all the people that the Messiah gathers were, were the home for God who's in exile. So this is what we're celebrating when we celebrate communion. We are a sanctuary. Um, I think I used up my time. <laughs> um,
might be a little indulgent. I'm going to just take two more, two more minutes. I, I went and bought the, uh, the groceries for the food pantry. And I had quite a fun experience doing it. I did it this morning. You know what I did? I decided I was going to pretend that I was buying them literally for Jesus. I was going to go buy groceries for Jesus. Because, you know, theologically that's the case. The food pantry serves immigrant families. And, okay, you know, if you're picking up what I'm laying down, we're buying groceries for Jesus. I thought, well, it would be fun to just actually literally do that in my mind. I had the best time. Let me show you what I got, Jesus. I got him, I got him my favorite English breakfast tea. I'm going to put, what the heck, I'm putting up here. This, I got, I got turmeric. They said spices. My wife has the world's largest turmeric collection. It's a personal thing between me, me and Jesus. I wanted him to have some turmeric. Um, I bought, usually I get um, Starbucks coffee, but I saw Detroit Bowl, Woodmert Avenue. I'm from Detroit. I'm like, no, Jesus would prefer this. I got him, I got him this. I got him uh, the baked beans in a jar. Those are the best, not the can, you know, for my Lord Jesus. I got him, um, I got him Hellman's mayonnaise. There was no particular uh, touching thing related to that. Uh, I got him these, uh, I got him these bars and stuff like that. Oh, I got him, um, I got him my favorite as a kid, vegetable beef Campbell soup to come home for lunch and get some Campbell's. I just wanted him to try Campbell's beef. And then I thought, well, he had a Jewish mother, so I got him a bigger can of chicken noodle soup. You know, <laughs> put that up there. I got him uh, A1 uh, steak sauce. I really don't eat much steak anymore because it's bad for you, but it says that he is beyond death, and so he can eat steak. <laughs> so I got him this. Uh, on the same basis, I got him, I got him, these were not on the list, I got him some pop parts. I thought, you know, I used to say very frequently, I, it was kind of an annoying thing, I apologize to you, if I, I used to say, praise the Lord and pass the pop tarts. I don't know why I said that. But I'm thinking Jesus heard that, he's wondering what are pop tarts, so I bought him some <laughs> pop tarts. Okay, I bought Jesus some, I, I cannot live without this stuff, it's like a thing for your teeth. And I got him Ken's Thousand Island. I just wanted him to. I don't know if you can take this, but it's a quirky sense of humor. I got him some Tampax. Now, just to, for sensibility's sake, no, I'll put that here. I got him that as a joke. I, I, I think he has a sense of humor. And I think, you know, um, his follower Paul said, in Christ there is no male or female. And I'm like... You know, it's not that he's male. That's not the thing anymore. I get him some Kotex. <laughs> so I did that as a little joke. I actually had a blast doing this. And so if you want to try that out, you can try that out. Here I am. <laughs> yeah, well, you just do the rest of it because I'm, I'm done.